S. Parrish is the Director of Marketing at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. She holds a B.A. in English and Christian Studies from Dallas Baptist University and an M.A. in Religion from the B.H. Carroll Theological Institute. She has written for the Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today, and Love Thy Nerd, and has spoken at the past two LTN cons, being the sole keynote speaker in 2022. When not engaging in academia, Jacqueline can be found around a table embracing the fantastic wilds of Dungeons and Dragons with some of her closest friends. Please welcome Jacqueline S. Parrish to the Nerd Culture Ministry Summit. Hey, girl. Is this working? Oh, it sounds like it's working. Thank you, Jesus. So, uh, when I was in fifth grade, I swore off Harry Potter. I decided I wasn't going to read any more of the books, watch any more of the movies. My Southern Baptist pastor family actually didn't have a problem with Harry Potter, but I had heard a lot of kids at my school say that Harry Potter was dangerous and that it was evil and that witchcraft was a sin and that if you were a really good Christian, you wouldn't even take that chance. And me, being a tiny little perfectionist, I was like, well, I have an abundance of caution. I, I guess I should stop reading Harry Potter. And so I did. And you know, back in the day, everyone loved to talk about how if you would read Harry Potter, that would inevitably trigger a slippery slope down which you would inevitably fall and end up worshiping Satan. No one ever talked about the slippery slope you could go down by swearing off Harry Potter and ending up a miserable little legalist, which is exactly who I became at age 11. See, I started... <laughs> trauma. So I started applying the same logic I used against Harry Potter to all the other nerd culture things I loved. And I stopped reading anything with fantasy in it, stopped reading anything with magic or spells or superpowers. At one point, I even swore off Redwall. It's, it's, I'll explain later. So, but more than that, I became haunted by a constant feeling of fear that I was displeasing God and doing something that he didn't like and not realizing it. And I was constantly guilty and constantly afraid that I was falling short of God's best for me. See, I really loved nerd culture, but I also did love Jesus, and I didn't understand how to make the two fit together. And the good news I have for y'all today is that I think now, several years later, if we understand nerdiness as it really is, and if church culture is what it ought to be, then the two are not as far away as you might think. So let's start by defining in some terms. What is a nerd? What sets nerds apart from non-nerds? Well, let's look at some definitions. Uh, let's start with the good old-fashioned OED. The secondary definition defines nerd as a person who pursues an unfashionable or highly technical interest with obsessive or exclusive dedication. Our man Simon Pegg has defined geek as it means never having to play it cool about how much you like something. It's basically a license to proudly emote on a somewhat childish level rather than behave like a supposed adult. Or my favorite, John Green, nerds like us are allowed to be unironically enthusiastic about stuff. We're allowed to love stuff, like jump up and down in your chair, can't control yourself, love it. When people call people nerds, mostly what they're saying is, you like stuff, which is not a good insult at all. Like, you're too enthusiastic about the miracle of human consciousness. <laughs> you see, when I look at these definitions, I see a common theme emerging. Obsessive or exclusive dedication. Like something. 
proudly emote on a somewhat childish level, unironically enthusiastic, love stuff, love it, you like stuff, you are too enthusiastic. What makes a nerd a nerd is love. Nerds love stuff. No one's a nerd in a vacuum, you're a nerd about something. I'm an anime nerd, I'm a film geek, I'm a board game geek. Nerds are people who love things. And this is important, nerds are people who love things, not the stuff things can get us, but the things themselves. And I realize I just used some highly technical theological terms like stuff and things several times. <laughs> so let me expound. There are things in this life that we pursue because we want what they can get us, and there are things in this life that we pursue because we want them. See, I go to work 40 hours a week because I want income, and I want health insurance, and I want to see a cause I value move forward. I go to D&D &D once a week because I want to. <laughs> Full stop. These two categories are defined by a guy named Joseph Piper as the servile arts and the liberal arts. What he says is that the liberal arts then include all forms of human activity which are an end in themselves. The servile arts are those which have an end beyond themselves. I go to work, that's a servile art, it serves a purpose. I go to D&D, &D, it's a liberal art, I do it because I want to, I do it freely in that sense. Nerds enthusiastically enjoy stuff that does not profit us. And I use profit in, the, in every sense of the term, not necessarily financial. For example, in sixth grade, I became obsessed, as so many sixth grade girls do, with Queen Elizabeth I. Yes. I knew everything about Good Queen Bess. I read every book I could find about her. I knew everything there was to know. And I would talk to anyone who would listen and many who would not about how amazing she was. And I enjoyed the heck out of it. It didn't earn me anything. Didn't make me any money. Surprisingly earned me no social clout with my peers. Didn't even show up on any history tests. You'd be surprised how many Teachers in rural West Texas don't care that you can name all six of Henry VIII's wives. <laughs> it didn't earn me anything, but that wasn't the point. What I, the love I had for Queen Elizabeth was nerd love, liberal arts love. I enjoyed knowing about her because it was enjoyable. Profitless enthusiasm. You see, nerds are people who make profitless enthusiasm a habit, but everyone in the world practices profitless enthusiasm at some point because it's just a fancy name for fun. Nerdiness, profitless enthusiasm, it's just a fancy word for fun. I play D&D, why? For fun. I learn about Elizabeth I, why? For fun. Fun happens wherever you find the liberal arts spirit, wherever we find something enjoyed for its own sake. We find fun, whether that's watching sports, or playing board games, or rock concerts, or rock climbing. Nerds may be exceptional because of the focus and dedication and intentionality of our profitless enthusiasm, but nerdiness and fun is universal. And that's why I would argue to you that nerdiness, as, as defined, is the key bridge between nerd culture and church culture. But in order to understand what fun has to do with our faith, we need to understand how it works. So we're gonna talk about how fun happens psychologically and theologically. So, in the 20th century, there was a positive psychologist by the name of Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi who did extensive research on what he called optimal experience, those moments in our lives that are most rewarding, most exciting, most enjoyable. And what he discovered was very interesting. 
Contrary to what we usually believe, the best moments in our lives are not the passive, receptive, relaxing times. The best moments usually occur when a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. He called this state of mind flow, and he characterized it as the sweet spot between boredom and anxiety. When we get a challenge that meets our abilities but doesn't exceed our abilities, we experience flow. If the challenge is too steep, we're just scared we're gonna fail and we're just anxious and we don't enjoy it. If the challenge is too low, you're bored. You've probably all played video or board games that fell on either end of those scales. But whenever a game hits right in that sweet spot of I've got what it takes to do this, but it's taken everything I got, man, that feels good. That is a state of mind I call giving fun. It's what we experience when we're pouring good, true, and beautiful things out into the world for others to enjoy. When something you do is making the world more beautiful, more true, and more good, that's exhilarating, it's exciting, it's enjoyable, it's fun. And I call that giving fun. Examples are playing games, making music, writing songs, painting pictures, dancing. I experience fun, I experience flow in writing and in teaching. Those of you who are ministry types may experience something similar. I really enjoy writing. I love reading a whole bunch of books and digging through a whole bunch of sources and figuring out how all those ideas fit together and then figuring out how to explain those ideas in a way that edifies the people I'm talking to. That whole process has been fun for me. Some of y'all may experience something similar when you're preparing a sermon. That's what I call giving fun. But of course, there's another category of things that are undeniably fun, but aren't flow. Those, those passive, relaxing, receptive times. And Csikszentmihalyi called this state of mind pleasure. Pleasure is a feeling of contentment that one achieves whenever information in consciousness says that expectations set by biological programs or by social conditioning have been met. Now, in the West, and particularly in the church, we're used to hearing the word pleasure as something bad, or at least something salacious. But pleasure is not a bad thing. You're a finite being. You're built and bred to want things. When you get the things you inherently need, you experience pleasure and that's not a bad thing. You're hungry, you eat yummy food, you feel pleasure. You're lonely, you hang out with friends you love, you feel pleasure, that's a good thing. I call that receiving fun. It's when you're drinking good, true, and beautiful things in from the world as gifts from others. And I experience, I experience receiving fun in reading good books or watching good movies or listening to music or eating yummy food receiving and giving fun. And this is key. All the fun we have falls into this two-beat rhythm of giving and receiving, but we experience the full rhythm more than two watertight categories one at a time. For example, I also really love baking. I love the whole process of baking. <laughs> I love thinking about who I'm baking for and figuring out what flavors they like and getting my ingredients and bringing the whole bake together and then giving it to them for them to enjoy. That whole process, I experience a lot of giving fun. However, I also like baking because after I've baked the thing, I get to eat the thing. And so I experience the full rhythm of giving and receiving fun, not one single category at a time, divorced from the other. Okay, that's how fun happens psychologically. That's fine. What does that mean for our faith? How does fun happen theologically? I see this exact pattern of giving and receiving in the first chapters of Scripture. Genesis 1, 1 through 25. All God does in these first verses of Scripture is have giving fun. That's all he's doing. He's making good, true, and beautiful things, and he's giving them to the world 
for others to enjoy. And he says, this is good, this is good, this is good. He's enjoying himself. He's taking delight in creating. Then in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God gives us, humanity, a task that would require us to stretch our bodies and minds to their limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. He gives humanity a flow opportunity, and this is what it is. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion. Many of you have probably heard this passage referred to as the creation mandate, or the cultural mandate. It's the passage in scripture where God grants humanity stewardship of creation. And of course that stewardship is the stewardship of a gardener over a garden, not a despot over a totalitarian government. The way Timothy Keller puts it in his book, Every Good Endeavor, is it, be fruitful and multiply, means civilization, not just procreation. The pattern for all work is creative and assertive. It is rearranging the world and is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. It's pouring good, true, and beautiful things out into the world for others to enjoy. Whether you're farming or writing music or sewing or cleaning or designing new technology, Whenever we bring order out of chaos, whenever we draw out creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation beyond where it was when we found it, we're following God's pattern of creative cultural development. We're made in the image of a giving God, and we're called to give. More than that even, we're built to give. Of course we find it fun and enjoyable. It's, what's, it's in our DNA. It's what we're made to do. But we're also made in the image of a resting God. Genesis 2.2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. But how does God rest? God doesn't sleep. He doesn't stop being God. All of the cosmos is only held in existence by his conscious, sustaining power. He didn't stop Godding, as it were, in Genesis 2.2. What was he doing that counted as rest? I'm inclined to agree with David Atkinson on this one from his commentary on Genesis. What is God's rest? Is it not delight in his creation? It is looking with joy on his world and saying this is good. Worship is our offering back to God for him to enjoy our enjoyment of his world. Observe the full sweep of Genesis 1-1 through 2-2. God has a great deal of giving fun. He commissions humanity to go and give likewise, and then he sits back like a parent watching their kid play a video game for the first time and waits to receive the good things his children will make. Here's what I would suggest to you. God made you for fun. He made you for fun in two senses of the word. He made you to have fun. He made you to enter into this rhythm of giving and receiving good, true, and beautiful gifts. He also made you to be fun. You're fun for God. You know why? Because the enthusiasm he has for you is profitless. You don't profit God. You don't get God anything he doesn't already have. Yes, we were made to glorify God forever, but we don't add to God's glory mathematically because you can't increase that which is infinite. God loves you, yes. He also likes you. You're fun for him. You're a liberal arts project. You're extra in all the best senses of the word. You're un, you're un, we are, as humanity, unnecessary. God loves us, yes, but he doesn't need us. He wants us. We're fun for God in the most complimentary way I can say it. 
But of course, we live in a fallen world. Fun is not what it ought to be. Giving fun is now rife with boredom and anxiety. Whatever industry you work in now, or you've ever worked in before, you can probably attest to the fact that so much of our work is either so dull, we're bored out of our minds, or so difficult, we're anxious messes. Giving fun is not what it ought to be. Receiving fun is not what it ought to be either. It's now riddled with starvation and gluttony. When Paul was having a go at the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians about how they were handling the Lord's Supper, he gives a really stark picture of what receiving fun looks like in a fallen world. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And that's, that's how fun, how receiving fun so often looks in our sinful world. So when you do experience fun in this fallen world, it should catch your attention because you're experiencing life as it's meant to be and as it one day will be again in the new heaven and the new earth. And that is why I would suggest to you that nerdiness, the intentional practice of profitless enthusiasm, is redemptive. The intentional practice of profitless enthusiasm, love and stuff real hard on purpose, has the power to make you more like what you ought to be. Nerdiness is redemptive. The way James K. Smith puts it in his book, You Are What You Love, we need pedagogies of desire, rituals that form and direct our affections, that retrain our hearts. His point in this book is that, essentially, our external, willed, physical habits shape our internal reality. Not just in the sense that they shape what we cognitively believe, but what we volitionally and emotionally want. The things we do with our bodies and our wills shape our vision of what the good life is and how we get it. He calls these cultural liturgies, and his favorite example is the mall. He calls the mall a temple of consumerism. He argues that everything from the architecture to the iconography to the ritual of selecting and making your purchases, it's a cultural liturgy that shapes you to believe that to be is to buy, that happiness comes by acquiring and consuming goods. So, for good or ill, our cultural liturgies shape us. It then follows, we should intentionally pursue habits that shape our, direction, our affections in the right direction, that train us to love what we're meant to love, how we're meant to love it. And this is why I would say again, the intentional practice of profitless enthusiasm, nerdiness, can shape our loves and desires in the directions God intended. I would suggest it does so in at least three ways. Nerdiness, first of all, recalibrates our love from profit to enjoyment. Our cultural liturgies train us in mercenary love. It train, they train us to want things for what those things can get us, not for themselves. I work in the marketing world, and so I've naturally heard of Donald Miller and StoryBrand. And it's good advertising ad advice, by the way. Good advertising doesn't consist of convincing you that the product is good. It consists of convincing you that if you possess the product, you will be able to live a narrative you desire. That's good advertising but it's also mercenary love. It's not enough to just sell good running shoes. No, you need to sell me on the idea of living a life of confidence and dignity and respect. Nerdiness, though, is a place where you practice profitless love. Like John Green says, nerds are allowed to just love stuff. It doesn't get us anything. Very few people are impressed with my encyclopedic knowledge of Elizabeth I. Doesn't matter, I love it because I love it. It's profitless love. I don't get anything out of it. It's a place to practice profitless love. It also trains us, it recalibrates us from consumption to participation. 
Our cultural liturgies train us in consumptive love. I mean that both in terms of food and tuberculosis. It's consumptive love. Receiving, 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 consuming, 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 getting, 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 and never giving back. The best example I have of this is Apple. Every Apple product you and I have ever purchased and used is built to break. It's made to break, it's meant to break. In many cases, the manufacturer has a specific date in mind, they want it to break. Why? So that you'll go buy another one. And as you can probably tell by the tone of, your, of my voice, I think that's scummy enough, but also Apple has taken it one step further in that they intentionally design their products in such a way that it's not impossible for the average user to fix it if it breaks. They don't want you interacting creatively with their product. They don't want you bringing order out of the chaos of your broken iPhone. They want you to take it back to the store so they can sell you a new one. And they're not even sort of the only company that does this. We have cultural liturgies built into our society that not only push us towards constant consumption, but actively prevent us from taking creative part in the things that we want and enjoy. But nerds take part in the things they love. Nerds are dissatisfied with just receiving. We want to give as well. The best example of this is from a book called The Creation of Narrative in Tabletop Role-Playing Games by Jennifer Groling Cover. And she argues, a sports fan who simply attends games may be no different than a TV fan who tunes in weekly to watch the series. Each may hold a certain level of participation, but as that participation becomes more and more involved, fans move more and more toward the fringes of mainstream culture. They don't watch a show, read a book, play a game, and simply move on to the next episode or the next show. Instead, they take what they have consumed and expand on it through writing, creative gameplay, art, or interaction with others. Lots of people see Marvel movies nowadays, and that's great. It's not really a nerdy thing to do to see a Marvel movie. It's what's in the theaters. It's when you start doing things like making fan art, doing cosplay, playing tabletop role-playing games that have to do with Marvel, or even just discussing headcanon theories with fellow fans. When you start participating in that thing you love, the more you participate, the nerdier you get. That's a good thing. Because nerdiness is a place where you can practice reciprocal love, entering into that rhythm of both giving and receiving. And last of all, nerdiness provides common ground. Our cultural liturgies frequently are designed to tear us apart. And after a decade working in the digital marketing space, I am confident to tell you our social media algorithms are not well designed to draw people together, but they are well designed to capture and hold your attention for long periods of time so that then, then the platform can sell your eyeballs to advertisers. And so if you spend 20 minutes on Twitter and at the end of it you feel more afraid of, angry at, or disgusted by other people, that's because fear, anger, and disgust are arresting emotions that capture our attention and keep us online. These are cultural liturgies that are not well designed to bring us together, and in fact, they're arguably well designed to tear us apart. But have you ever been in the room where two nerds discover each other? Yeah. It's great. They go from like quiet in the back of the room to suddenly their eyes get really big and they start talking really loud and we start doing really like Italian gestures with our hands. It's great. The things we love bring us together. Nerdiness is a place where you can practice empathetic love. It provides just one square inch of common ground, a place to stand together while you figure out everything else that's strange about the other. Nerdiness provides common ground and lets us practice empathetic love. 
So, nerds are people who make a habit of profitless enthusiasm. We're people who do fun on purpose. We intentionally practice fun. We enter with enthusiasm into the joyful giving and thankful receiving of good, true, and beautiful gifts. And that practice has the ability to shape who we are and what we love to be more like what we should be. What does that mean for your ministry? And perhaps more specifically, what does that mean for the churches y'all are trying to get on board? I would suggest it means four things, one broad principle and three specific applications. Broadly, I would say if you want to be, if you want to reach a nerd, be a nerd. And I mean that in specifically three ways. Number one, practice profitless love. It will take practice, we're not good at it, not in the West. Our obsession with results can easily infect our ministries. We become so fixated on seeing results that we adopt toxic tactics. We want to see good stuff happen. We want to see people's lives change. People get baptized, join meaningful communities. And so we do things like protect institutions over the people they're designed to protect. Or we preach for clicks, follows, and shares instead of the actual edification of our congregation, where that congregation is in person or online. Or, or we just drive ourselves and our church staffs into burnout and nervous breakdowns. Our pathological preoccupation with profit doesn't translate well to a ministry environment, and it will go even more poorly in a nerd culture environment. Don't make fun the bait you use to hook people in to eternal life. That's not ministry, that's advertising. And nerds will smell that a mile away. Instead, work to establish a rhythm of fun within your congregation, within your ministry, and then invite people into that fun. Don't make fun the hook you use to bring people into eternal life. Fun is eternal life. Fun is life as it's meant to be. So find things that you and your people enjoy together. Find ways to establish that ongoing rhythm of giving and receiving good, true, and beautiful gifts, and then invite people to join into that. Because when you invite people to join into that, you're inviting people who don't know Jesus to experience eternal life, and that's incredibly compelling. My example I would give to a lot of the churches y'all are probably talking to is fall festivals. The trunk or treats, the, the, the Jesus Halloween things, everyone does them, they're great. Fall festivals are lovely, lovely things. What I would suggest, though, is if they're not fun for your people, if they're not fun for the particular churches y'all are working with, do something else. Nowhere in scripture are you required to do a fall festival. I know it's what all the other suburban churches are doing, and that's great. I love a good Jesus Halloween party, but it's not required. And also, fall fests are a lot of work. They can be really exhausting. And if for you and your people, it's not fun for you, that's fine. Do something else. Do a Super Bowl party. Do a Eurovision watch party. Tell me if you do, I will come. Find the things that you and your people love. Work to establish a rhythm of enjoying those things together, and then invite people to enjoy them with you. Number two, practice reciprocal love. Ministers and nonprofit ministry types can easily get stuck in giving mode and giving and giving and giving and giving and exhausting ourselves. Insert statistic on pastor burnout here. So what I would suggest is that since fun is inherently about giving and receiving, don't assume that you need to go out after this week and start a new nerd culture thing. And definitely don't assume that the churches you're working with need to go do that. 
that may be what you need to go do. Don't assume that you must. Instead, consider advising the churches you're working with, discover where nerd culture is already thriving around you, and go out and support it. Henry Blackaby says it this way in Experiencing God, find where God is working and join him there. Corbin and Fickert put it differently in When Helping Hurts. They say, don't rush into a community, figure out what's wrong, and then try and fix it. Instead, step into community, figure out what's going well, and work to amplify it. For example, say you're working with a church that is like, all right, we want to do the nerd culture thing. This is great. We should start an after-school D&D program for the youths. That sounds great. I want to come, even though I'm not a youth anymore. So, but here's what I would suggest. Before you rush out and do that, time out for just a second, do a little bit of research, find out if there's already an after-school D&D program in your neighborhood. Is your, local, is your local community center doing that? Your local library? Your friendly local game store? Don't start up something new that might compete with something that's already good and going. Find out what's good and ongoing and step in and say, what you're doing is great. How can we make it greater? Be willing to both give and receive in the rhythm of fun in your ministries. Last of all, practice empathetic love. Here's the thing about empathy. Empathy is about the attempt, not the success. You're never really going to understand how someone else feels. You're never really going to know where someone else is coming from. A lot of us don't even understand how we feel. How are we going to understand how someone else feels? That's okay, though. That's not what empathy is about. Empathy is about standing on whatever sliver of common ground you can find with someone and working as hard as you can to understand them, knowing you're going to fail. You're going to fail today. You're going to fail tomorrow. You're going to fail the next day. doesn't matter. The point is that you try. It's the Yoda method in reverse. When it comes to empathy, there is no do, there is only try. And in the attempt, you find the success. Keep that in mind as you're trying to reach out to nerds and nerd culture. See, many of our evangelistic habits are calibrated to discover what people lack and then plug Jesus in to what they're missing. And you know what? That is a perfectly good way to do evangelism. It's very confessions of Augustine. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. It's a, perfect, a perfectly good way to do evangelism. It's not the only way. And I would suggest Christians are, no, nerds are already used to hearing Christians say there's something wrong with them. So instead, or at least additionally, consider starting with the common ground instead of the disputed territory you have with the nerds in your community. See, the only reason I was able to get back to reading Harry Potter is because I managed to find some common ground with a dusty, old, boring Oxford professor who was dead at the time. I walked into a Books A Million, those don't even exist anymore, I'm pretty sure, walked into this bookstore, and there was this big display of Lord of the Rings books. And the movies had just come out, I'd read the books with my parents, I knew Lord of the Rings was safe because Tolkien was a Christian, so that worked. But I remember walking up to the display and seeing this life-size cardboard cutout of Sir Ian McKellen as Gandalf the Grey. And I remember having this epiphany of, hang on a second, that's a wizard. He's got a pointy hat and a beard. He calls it a staff, but it's a magic wand. He casts spells with it. The whole book calls him a wizard. He's a wizard. 
How come the wizard with the pointy hat and the beard is okay, but the wizard with the froofy hair and the scar on his forehead, oh, he's evil. Something don't add up. And, you know, there, were a, there was a whole lot of disputed territory I didn't get, I didn't understand. I didn't really actually know what the Old Testament said about witchcraft. I didn't know how the Bible defined witchcraft. I couldn't have articulated to you a really sophisticated way of applying Old Testament teaching to New Testament living. There was a lot of disputed territory I didn't get, but I knew one thing. I knew John Ronald Rule Tolkien loved Jesus. And somehow, that crotchety old English guy had figured out how to make this whole fantasy thing work with his love of Christ our Savior. And I thought, okay, if he can do it, it can be done. And it gave me just enough common ground to stand confidently well, I figured out all the disputed territory that didn't make sense. Because again, if you'll start with that common ground, you'll find that the bridges we're trying to build between church culture and nerd culture aren't as long and are a good deal wider and a lot easier to walk across. <laughs>